Welcome, everybody, to Soccer 101. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on this episode, we're taking a look at a concept that was an outlier previously, but seems to be gaining traction and popularity uh, each and every day. It is the idea of multi-club ownership. Graham Ruthven is joining me to talk about it. Graham, not the most like alluring of titles, mm. but multi-club ownership, a pretty major concept in modern football. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is an important subject to cover because sister clubs and satellite clubs and feeder teams, if we're including them under those this umbrella as well, mm-hmm. and as you called it, in, um, multi-club ownership, which is kind of the catch-all term, it's increasingly becoming a big part of soccer. So last weekend, PSG beat Trois, which relegated them to Ligue 1 in, in, in France. Trois are owned by City Football Group. When we spoke about Tati Castellanos scoring four goals against Real Madrid fairly recently, he was playing for Girona. They're also connected to the City Football Group. And we have all this discussion about Qatar possibly buying Manchester United. There are questions about whether that would make Manchester United and PSG part of the the, the same ownership group. There's also the Red Bull network of clubs as well, which obviously Leipzig being towards the top end of the Bundesliga and the Champions League every year, that network also helped produce arguably the best goal scorer of the, the new generation in Erling Haaland. So the point I'm making is, that this is a, this trend is growing and it is changing the face of soccer at the elite level. And even when we're maybe not overtly having a discussion about multi-club ownership, it is increasingly the case that it is a factor in the discussions that we're having. So I want to take a couple different approaches to this. I want to talk about the ramifications, where we go from here, how it's come to be. First, I think it's worth sort of categorizing some things so we're not uh, cross using terms or, or making things murkier than they already might be. So, Graham, let's lace out some details here. First off, when we talk about feeder clubs, what do we mean by that? Because if you incorrectly categorize, say, Brighton or Southampton as feeder clubs, their fans will take a lot of offense to that. <laughs> Supporters of those clubs do not love being called feeder clubs because they have their own aspirations and their own long term goals. So I I would say those don't really qualify. I would put them into a different category. But what is a feeder club in your mind, Graham? So there was a a time when Southampton were effectively a feeder club to Liverpool, (laughs) the number of players they were sending to Liverpool, but there was no formal arrangement between the two clubs. And I think that, that is the key part. So the term feeder team implies some sort of connection, a hierarchy between clubs. And my understanding or my interpretation of that term is that they wouldn't be under the same ownership group. I think a sister club is something mm-hmm. you would you would call a team that's under the same ownership as as another team because obviously you have that that relation, you know, implied in the term in the term sister there. A feeder team, there might be uh traffic of players between two teams and transfers. Um, you know, RB Leipzig are the sister club of um Red Bull Salzburg in Austria. You can never really, despite the fact Salzburg t- send a lot of players to Leipzig, I wouldn't really describe them as, as, as a feeder team per se. Mm-hmm. But then if you're going back 10, 15 years, Vitesse Arnhem in, in the Netherlands were very much a feeder team with Chelsea. They didn't have the same ownership group, but there was an arrangement between the two. And obviously Chelsea would send loan players to, to Holland, to Vitesse. Um, I also remember Manchester United have an arrangement with, um, Royal Antwerp, with Royal Antwerp. And, and yeah, in Belgium. They weren't owned by the same 
same people, but there was an arrangement there. And I think players like, I always remember Luke Chadwick for some reason. Do you remember him, Taylor? Luke Chadwick playing for Manchester United. He went to Royal Antwerp on loan yeah. for, for, for a season. I don't know why I remember Dong, that. But Dong Fang Zhu as well. Yeah. The Chinese yep. player he went to for Manchester United. Yep. Mm-hmm. That would exactly. Be one. So that, that is a, that is a feeder team arrangement. As with most things in soccer, my understanding of this stuff comes from football manager. Yeah. So anyone who has played that game will know you can ask your club to come up with suggestions of feeder clubs you pick one and then you can send players on loan there that is a very different arrangement to a multi-club owner multi-club ownership group or being a sister club to another team there we go so sister club we would say is a direct connection between clubs with the same ownership or same ownership group involved at whatever level maybe it's a 20 percent ownership stake versus a 100 percent ownership stake either way when there's the same owner Regardless of the percentage owned, I would say they're sister clubs. Feeder clubs was more of a an actual relationship, but not necessarily ownership. Although I think it's come out that Chelsea did have maybe a little bit of monetary involvement in Vitesse, but it's more of an like an official unofficial arrangement for player exchanges. And then a selling club uh, would be somebody who basically just makes a lot of money off of selling their players on. Maybe it's not their identified model or even their preferred model, but it's. Oftentimes, I think a title that's put upon that club. So Southampton selling a ton of players every single season, selling club. Brighton doing the same. But even somebody like Santos or maybe a lot of your Dutch clubs, I think oftentimes yeah. get seen as selling clubs because they're not developing players for five, six, seven, eight years. They're developing players for a couple seasons to then sell on for large amounts of money to then reinvest into their own squad and their own facilities, basically. Yeah, and there are some grey areas here. I'm going to use a couple of Scottish examples here. So Celtic, for a number of years, had a good relationship with Manchester City. So they would get a few Man City players on loan. They got Jeremy Frimpong, who's now doing very well at Leverkusen. He went to Celtic. And that basically came down to the chairman's son at Celtic had some kind of involvement with City Football Group. Now, I wouldn't then describe Celtic as a feeder team to Manchester City, but there was some sort of relationship there. Using a personal example, where we have a good relationship with Dundee United, they send us players on loan. Again, I wouldn't. it's not formalised. There's, I would imagine there's nothing in writing there. We don't have to take a certain number of players from them per season, so there is that relationship. But feeder teams maybe would have something that is, that is written in a contract. You have to take a number of players per season, so that is a difference there as well. So then we, when we look at football groups, when we look at sort of conglomerates almost, you'll get smaller ones like the Pozzo family owning Udinese and Watford and a couple other ones as well. But the major ones that we've already talked about would be City Football Group yeah. and how many different clubs they own and how yeah. many different countries and continents. And then uh, Red Bull having clubs uh, around the world as well. And those are the two, I would say, most notable instances of one ownership group owning multiple clubs on mon- multiple continents, sometimes yeah. in multiple countries, uh, with an idea of developing players, moving players on, establishing branding, uh, and multiple other avenues for both income and for development of players at the same time. Yeah, so those two entities that you mentioned there, City Football Group and the the Red Bull brand, I think they have completely changed the concept of what it is to be a a multi-club ownership group. So City Football Group, they have 12 clubs in their network now. They have clubs in the United States, obviously, um, Australia, India, Japan, Spain, Brazil, Uruguay, China, Belgium, France, Italy, and of course, England with Manchester City. Red Bull have five clubs, including RB Leipzig, Red Bull Salzburg and obviously the Red Bulls and and MLS. There is a little bit of a difference in purpose between those networks, Mm -hmm. at least the way I interpret it. So with Red Bull, 
I think the purpose of their network is is generally speaking football focused. Yes, yes, at a, at a kind of core level, it's about promoting an energy drink. Um, but they have two clubs in Brazil, one in Germany, one in Austria, one in the States. And all those clubs have played their role in pushing players into the pipeline, whether it's Tyler Adams mm. or Naby Keita or Benjamin Chesko, who is about to join Leipzig from Salzburg this summer so having these clubs in different territories I also think the way that they have selected those countries and territories has has been quite tactical from a from a football point of view more than a, a commercial one again I'm not saying there's not a commercial interest there because of course there is in the fundamental purpose of that whole brand but I think it, it has allowed them having those clubs in different territories allows them to not just sign players from those territories but place players of different quality at different levels to help their development so I think if you are a marquee talent, you're obviously at RB Leipzig, but you might go from the Red Bulls to Salzburg to then RB Leipzig, or you might go Salzburg straight to, to Leipzig. You might go from Brazil straight to Leipzig. Basically, the best talent gets funneled into RB Leipzig, who are the marquee team in that network. They play in the Bundesliga, they play in the Champions League. So if you're the best, you go to that team, generally speaking. With City Football Group, their their intention seems to be a little bit different. So they want to make, and I read a good number of articles about this subject, but what I took from those articles were they want to make soccer more corporate, meaning they want to run it like a business. And that's pretty much in the words of Ferran Soriano, who is the, the head of City Football Group. He said... This is how many industries work. The magic is to do it in an industry and that has never that has never been that has never done it before. So he's basically saying we're going to look at how things are done in other businesses and we're going to take that into to soccer. Um he has a very different definition of magic to me because this sounds like the soul being ripped out of clubs for the sake of making money but hey I guess if that's his purpose then City's football group are doing a pretty good job of it. It's it's about using the links between clubs to maximize profit. And that could involve player transfers. So Jack Harrison was a good example of this, played for NYCFC, moved to City, never played for Man City as far as I'm aware, certainly not in the Premier League. He went out on a few loans. He was then ultimately sold to to Leeds for £11 million. I think City Football Group will do something similar with Tati Castellanos, who obviously was at NYCFC as well. He's now on loan at Girona, um, another uh, CFG club. And I bet they sell him for at least €10 million to, to someone else. So... Um, City Football Group always yeah. push back when you suggest their clubs don't have autonomy and and I know that because I've had a few phone calls myself after writing something in The Guardian about them but the, the fact is that there is a level of control from a central office for, on a commercial level and also on a, a footballing level as well. What about uh, the City Football Group clubs like Mumbai City and Sichuan Junu. Uh, I don't speak Chinese, so I apologize if I butchered that one. I almost certainly did. Where, like, I'm sure there is an idea of developing players in countries that aren't known for their soccer history or are trying to have more soccer history. How much of that do you feel like is player development, talent identification versus branding and having sort of City Football Group as being a visible part of soccer in India, in China, promoting the brand, promoting brand awareness. I think that's it, to be honest. I don't want to be too cynical about it, but we haven't seen, as far as I'm aware anywhere, we we haven't seen any players pushed into a pipeline from these teams. And look, maybe I'm giving Red Bull a little bit too much credit, um, because obviously it's a corporate entity as well, as illustrated by the fact they're 
teams are called mm-hmm. Red Bull, whatever. Um, but we have got that evidence of players from all over their network being pushed into that pipeline. And look, maybe it's just a little bit too early for City to have to have done that, City Football Group to have done that. But the cynic in me says going into countries like India, like China, we all know that soccer has tried yeah. to crack those markets previously. There's obviously a huge untapped source of, yes, footballing talent, but also commercial wealth for the sport in those areas. So I, I do, I am a little bit more cynical with what City Football Group's intentions are. I think I am too. I will say though that at least they don't make all of the teams change their names. So yeah. like that. Well, that sometimes is the difference. Mel- like Melbourne, Melbourne City were um, I think Melbourne Heart before, yeah. uh, so they do sometimes change the identities of the clubs. Yes, but they don't have to be lawn ball sport so as to find a way to have R and B <laughs> in the name. Yeah, RB that's a farce. <laughs> but to to your initial point, Graham, or your earlier point. A thing that I was not really fully aware of until we started researching this episode, until I started researching this episode, is how much more common this has become. As I said in the intro, I think we talk about the Pozzo family, we talk about City Football Group, we talk about Red Bull, and that's where we tend to leave it, I think, because of the those are the kind of the most high-profile ones for now. But looking, the best example I can give is looking at Belgium's Pro League, um, the top division in Belgium. You've got... 10 of 18 clubs are owned by foreign investors. Of those 10, six are basically multi-club ownership structures. You've got Pacific Media Group. They own stakes in seven different clubs, including one in Belgium. Seven Seven Partners have uh, stakes in four different clubs. King Power, the owners of Leicester City, have involvement. Tony Bloom, who owns Brighton Hove Albion, have involvement, as does Vincent Tan, who owns Cardiff City. So you've got multi-club ownership starting to take root all around Europe and all around the world, I think because a lot of different people will tell you it is the future of football. It is the way that you establish sort of a solid foundation and you make yourself resistant to ups and downs in various leagues. I think part of the idea is if you have ownership stakes in multiple clubs, if you have five clubs and two of them are struggling, but three of them are succeeding, you can sort of balance the books a little bit and help the other clubs along the way, maybe you loan some players, but maybe there's also just a, an idea of sharing what you've learned between clubs to help overall the management and operation of those teams. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just look at scouting. It makes it makes yeah. sense to have one giant scouting system rather than have each club have its own individual scouting system. And if you have... Melbourne City sharing the same scouting network as Manchester City, it's it's logical to think that Melbourne City are going to stand a better chance of signing better players if you're sharing the same scouting network as the Premier League champions and maybe the best team in Europe. And you're right, Taylor, this is... This is a growing trend. It's not just City Football Group. It's not just the Ned, the the Red Bull Network. The news story that actually got me thinking about this episode was about a month ago when it was reported that Chelsea mm-hmm. and Todd Bowley have started talks with Bordeaux to take over that club in Ligue, Ligue 2 in France. They've been relegated from uh, Ligue 1. I think that happened last season. And so Chelsea want to start a network of their own, like City have, apparently. You mentioned uh, 777 Partners there. They're, they're a Miami-based investment fund, one of these companies that doesn't really do anything beside owning other companies. But they have added uh, Genoa in Italy, Vasco da Gama in Brazil, Standard Liège, um, Red Star, um, I believe uh, Hertha Berlin, I think, is owned partly owned by 777 Partners as well. Um, 
David Blitzer, who is the Real Salt Lake principal owner, the new Real Salt Lake principal owner, he also has holdings in, in clubs in England and Germany and Spain. And there's been talk of uh, Qatar Sports Investments, who own PSG, doing something similar. And they held talks into buying Espanyol last year in, in, in La Liga, although that never really that never really came to, to, to anything. So this is this is something that not just City Football Group and Red Bull are looking at. It feels like every... I, I predict 20 years from now, every major European club will have a kind of network of its own. So Manchester United, whoever owns Manchester United in 20 years' time, they will have a, two or three clubs around the world. Real Madrid will have similar. Barcelona will have some something similar as well. Mm. Um, that is... While we have seen that in the past, I remember the story of Real Madrid. Like, aren't Real Salt Lake called Real Salt Lake because they were trying to get into some sort of partnership with... Real Madrid that, that was like half, it yeah. was uh, my memory of it is that there was a partnership that was like half announced mm-hmm. and Real Salt Lake were like okay we're going to be Real Salt Lake and then that fell through anyway the point i'm making was that that that's that's a long time ago it's nothing new but it just feels like it's ramping up now and it's becoming increasingly common the Manchester United Los Angeles Galaxy i look forward to it <laughs> uh i i agree with you i think that is we talk a lot about sort of the like the the undiscovered country, the next aspects of football growth and how things will expand, how things will change. And I think oftentimes we look at tactics and tactical in- innovation and evolution or changes to scouting or changes to analytics. I think this is another one that maybe we wouldn't have foreseen a few years ago and now is probably the future. Yeah, if you're an owner of a club, it's going to mean more money, certainly. But it also means that you can promise a young player more diversified pathways of, okay, we're going to start you in the academy, then we have multiple clubs where we can loan you out, and the idea being that you have a a controlling interest in those teams so that you can ensure the way they're playing or the style of playing or what their goals are. So if you have a team in Belgium where you don't really care if you get relegated or not, you're about giving players under the age of 21 opportunities to develop and get senior team minutes, then you know you're sending a young player there to make that happen. Whereas if you have a a single entity club, or, or not a single entity, but a single ownership club, they want to stay up. They can't afford that. And so you might send your 18-year-old there, but if that club is in a relegation battle, that 18-year-old might not get any minutes. Yeah. And so I think right there, you can promise certain pathways, certain avenues for development that other clubs could not. Yeah, it's about offering players everything that they could ever need. Mm-hmm. If you are, let's use City Football Group again as an example, if you are a Premier League level talent, you're going to Man City. If you're a level below that, you're going to maybe Girona in La Liga or you're going to MLS with NYCFC. If you're below that, maybe you're you know going to India or the Chinese club or, or maybe the, the Australian A-League. It's essentially like, this is a weird analogy, <laughs> but it's essentially like a Peloton subscription, right? Where you buy your subscription Interesting. and you have your beginner levels where you're, you're, spin- you're not really doing much spinning, but then you have like your full athletic levels. You buy the one subscription and you choose your level. That's essentially what in the transfer market, these multi-club networks are offering players as that movement. If you get better as well, you can move up, you can move down. You're never really going to be, as long as you're under their umbrella, umbrella you're never really going to be left with nothing i think that's and that is a big selling point for players so graham uh you are obviously now the authority uh, on these uh types of club these types of acquisitions so if if a club let's say manchester united we're with new ownership manchester united come to you and they say who should we be looking at what, what are the types of clubs that we should be looking 
for when it comes to partnering or basically making them into sister clubs. Feels like there are some commonalities in my mind. One of them is as like predatory as it sounds, I feel like some of these uh, organizations look for vulnerable teams. To your point, Bordeaux, relegated, not in a strong position, maybe not financially sound. So you have this potential opportunity for a club that is or an ownership group that has a ton of money to come in. That's immediately going to stabilize things. That is immediately going to make like things easier. It's not fully dissimilar from like what we saw in Welcome to Wrexham when the supporters were maybe wary of these two Hollywood celebrities coming in and buying their club. But at the same time, there's immediate brand recognition, marketing and money behind it. You're going to take that risk because it means you might get new opportunities with more money and more exposure. I think that's a pretty big one. I think these clubs look at teams that sometimes have name recognition, sometimes don't, but are in a position where the, the potential benefits and positives of that arrangement far outweigh the negatives. Yeah, you're essentially looking for untapped potential, right? You're looking, whether it's commercial potential, so going into a country like India or China or even the United States, United States, I guess, that's untapped commercial potential. You're also looking for untapped soccer potential where mm-hmm. there might be young players that aren't, that previously weren't getting the, the opportunities that they, they deserved. I think um, City have been quite clever with this. Obviously, Red Bull have been clever as well. But I look at Girona, as as a, a good club for City Football Group to be involved in because Rona are actually a tiny a tiny little club. They're they're absolutely tiny. So when City Football Group buy them over, there isn't a lot of fuss of oh, you know, you're erasing the history of this club. This is a an historic institution. I'm sure maybe some Girona fans did make that argument, but because they're so small and they don't really have that many fans, it doesn't really make the mainstream. And so City Football Group to uh, uh, going a little bit Scooby Doo here, but like they get away with it because of because of the clubs that they that, that they target. That's where there's something shifting though, because Bordeaux, to use them as as an example, Bordeaux are historically one of the most successful clubs in France. They're also one of the biggest clubs in France, and so I can imagine Todd Bowley wading in there thinking that he's just doing as everyone else is doing, whereas actually he's kind of doing something quite a bit different. And certainly a lot more risky, that could change the dynamic if all of a sudden a club like Bordeaux is owned by Chelsea. Even Espanyol as well. No Espanyol, the discussion around them has always been, you know, how can Barcelona be so big and Espanyol not be so big and not be successful? But nonetheless, Espanyol are traditionally a top division Spanish team with a lot of fans. PSG by them, there's going to be a lot of blowback and a lot of pushback from that as well. I actually wrote an article for uh, Optus about that very subject and how Espanol fans were fighting back against that. So we are seeing a shift in dynamic where previously City Football Group have either targeted or, or networks like City Football Group, they've targeted clubs with either very little history or smaller clubs that they're not going to get a lot of pushback from, or actually they've started their own clubs like they did with NYCFC. And now we're seeing more established teams being brought into these umbrellas. What what are the potential negatives, Graham? What are the potential drawbacks to this one? That's one that we haven't really talked about. I feel like we've been, if not positive, then just sort of going over some of the, the facts of these acquisitions and how these organizations work. But I'm assuming there are some negatives, some, some drawbacks to these plans. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So editorializing a little bit here, if, if it's come across that I am being positive on these networks, then I'm very much uh, playing devil's advocate. I think you're, because... being, I think you're being justifiably <laughs> neutral okay. up until this point. 
Yes. Okay, yeah. I mean, screw multi-club ownership, essentially, is my my own personal opinion. Um, and it largely comes down to just identity of clubs and teams, which, if you're a fan, is just so important. It's, it's, it's a part of yeah. your personal identity, the team that you support, the community that you're part of. And so if all of a sudden a big Premier League team or a big Qatari-owned team in France or whoever comes in and basically scrubs that identity... And not only that, kind of hollows out the club from the inside, where all of a sudden your club isn't even being operated at, a, at an executive level from your community, from your club. It's being operated from Manchester or Paris or Leipzig or, or, or wherever. That is a real compromising disruption of 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 your club's yeah. identity and your club's soul. I, I mean, we talk about soul in, in football a lot and it's difficult to define, but... That kind of feels like snatching the soul of a yeah. club. It's it's we're talking about changing a club to a franchise, effectively. It's yeah. it's it's not dissimilar in my mind from when McDonald's uh, would open up franchises in new countries, and then you would get like the McArabia or the Al Halal Burger or whatever. You would get like the different uh, like sort of concessions to the local culture while still being a multinational conglomerate that has the same menu at every single restaurant around the world. So you're you're incorporating little bits to be like, yeah, we're we're still like yes, and now it's Starbucks instead of your local coffee shop, but we do have that one coffee that you used to buy that used to be available in the local place. Sure the name and the branding and everything else is different, but that thing remains. That that is the, one of the big knocks for me is that because you have that decentralized ownership, you don't have people who are necessarily reflecting the ideals of that club, of that culture, of that city, whatever it might be. And especially so if you want all of your clubs playing a similar style of football, like like maybe that doesn't reflect what that club has been in the past, but now you're you're making them change the identity, you're making them change the style. It becomes part of a whole, part of a collective. It becomes the Borg versus the Klingons. Yeah. I don't know, to use a very nerdy Star Trek analogy. <laughs> Yeah, and from a footballing point of view as well, we've covered the pros of being in the pipeline, being part of the pipeline of a multi-club ownership group. But the, 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 the downside, the con of that is if a player comes to you through that pipeline, does amazingly well, they then get moved on to another club in the ownership group for, generally speaking, less than market value. So I was going to use Tati Castellanos as an example here, but I think he's actually on loan at Girona. So when he is sold, NYCFC will actually get the, the transfer fee for that, I believe. Maybe the best example of this is Naby Keita, who was at Red Bull Salzburg, was brilliant for Red Bull Salzburg in European competition and in the Austrian Bundesliga. He then gets moved to... RB Leipzig for next to nothing and then Leipzig sell him to Liverpool for 60 million euros so when so ultimately Salzburg produced a 60 million euro player but that that fee went to RB Leipzig in the end so there is a ceiling and look this is something that applies to most clubs if you're not in the Premier League or if you're not a big six club in the Premier League or if you're not Real Madrid or Barcelona but there is a ceiling to what you can achieve because your best players, if they succeed and they excel and they attract attention, are not going to stick around. And obviously that is the same for all clubs, but it feels like they stick around even less if you're in one of these multi-ownership groups. I mean, Benjamin Sesco is a perfect example. Sesco is maybe a player that listeners maybe might not have heard of or aren't they, that familiar with. If and they've played FIFA career mode, they're familiar. <laughs> sure, yeah. Football manager as well. He's, mm-hmm. he's very highly rated in, in football manager. But... 
he is he's a player who for like for uh, Salzburg excuse me is only just starting out he's only been there for like two seasons I think this is his second season and he's already got a transfer arranged to Leipzig I think that transfer has been arranged since last summer so he had one season at, at Salzburg before he then got pushed into the pipeline yeah. to, to Leipzig so it's very difficult to build anything that lasts if you're part of these uh, exactly. part of yeah. these groups uh, Dominic Silvaslai would be another prime example of that one. Goes from Liefering to Salzburg for 500,000 euros, then goes from Salzburg to Leipzig uh, three years later for 22 million euros. But with the his talent, his stature, and his potential, I think if Dortmund had come in for him, that's probably 30 million or a little bit more than that. Like I, I do think there is an ease in moving players along. And that the same thing goes for, for coaches as well. We've seen that with Jesse Marsh where he goes uh, to Salzburg and then he gets like, I think he had an assistant gig at Leipzig. Then he gets the full, the full-time gig, the head coaching gig at Salzburg. Then he goes to Leipzig as the, as the full-time manager and that doesn't work out, but you will have also that sort of movement. And there is this idea. If you're a manager, come in, start with Red Bulls and then we'll see where that goes. Start with, with NYCFC and see where that goes. And maybe that means you go outside of the network at some point, but you're giving that foundation, you're giving that starting point for then managers to move on. Same thing for players. I think that can have its own strengths and weaknesses, especially when you then look at conflicts of interest. It's recently become less of a big deal, but lest we forget, like fairly recently, you couldn't, uh, one ownership group couldn't have two teams in European competition. So, I think that came to a head when Salzburg and Leipzig both qualified for the Champions League, uh, and then there were workarounds and loopholes, and now I think it's just allowed outright. Yep. Uh, but only recently was that changed, and I'm assuming we'll still get more concessions along the way as this becomes more common. But you do have to have rules sort of allow for these things to occur. Yeah, so it's worth covering what those rules actually are because that's a, a very relevant uh, talking point on, on, on the subject. So UEFA's rules currently restrict clubs from being owned by the same owners um, but obviously these rules are being bent as far as possible by the groups that we've talked about so UEFA bars clubs playing in the same competitions in any season uh, if owners have quote decisive influence over them and that term decisive influence has has provided enough leeway to still permit these multi-club networks and as you mentioned Taylor, uh, 2017 I think was the first time that Leipzig and Salzburg were were both entered into the, the same Champions League campaign. That went to a UEFA panel of uh, club finance experts and they accepted the explanation from those two that they had created enough separation between the two clubs. Take from that, take from that what you will. And UEFA in general has given mixed messages, even though it is written into their their legislation, their constitution as a governing body that restricts multi-club ownership, they have given mixed messages on, on its view of club networks in recent times um, because they, 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 they warned just last month of the integrity risk posed by multi-club ownership, potential collusion on the field and the transfer market. It was in their annual review of the European soccer industry. Those were the terms that they used. But then the following month, Alexander Seferin suggested uh, that... When Manchester United were being linked with Qatar and he was asked about um, PSG and the links there, he essentially said, well, you know, this is kind of happening in European soccer and we don't really see much of an issue there. So there's a lot of scepticism about UEFA's rules on this and how they are being enforced. But quite clearly, as we can see from how many clubs are coming under these umbrellas, 
<laughs> there's enough leeway there. There's enough interpretation, individual interpretation, that it isn't posing a problem to clubs, to groups like City Football Group or Red Bull or whoever. So why are you so opposed to it then, Graham? Opposed to multi-club ownership, mm-hmm. just for the reason that the, the the kind of the identity reason and the and the hollowing out of clubs mm-hmm. and. I guess just the fact that it makes it very difficult to to buy uh, to uh, build anything. I mean, Stirling Albion look; it's unlikely that we will ever make it to the Scottish Premiership. But there's always that little bit of hope of you know if we get a golden generation of youngsters mm-hmm. or just find the right group of players, then maybe we might rise up through the divisions. And being part of a multi-club ownership group just kind of makes that yeah. impossible. You kind of stay at your level, the level you're at, because that's why they've bought you because you're at that level, and so they don't actually want you to leave that level. I think for me, it's also, and this is naive perhaps, but I'm fine with it. I think there's just an idea that like, I love the stories that we get in, in football around the world of like localized ownership and, and how clubs can reflect that local identity. So like, this would never happen. But like Athletic Bilbao being purchased by a football group and being turned into another sort of machine for talent development, maybe that gives them more financial stability or more financial resources. But for a club that only employs Basque players, I'm going to assume that's why they would never be involved. It's an extreme example, but it's my point that like you get these clubs that are reflective of their particular city, region, town, whatever, identity, history, culture. And, and so if you're an away fan going to a game there – Colm would be a great example of this. I knew nothing about FC Colm until we we didn't even go there. We drove through there to get to a game and learning about the rivalry they have with Dusseldorf, but about how they have their own like carnival because there's a huge Catholic population there. And so they have their own like Brazilian carnival and the fans reflect that and the identity and the rivalry they have with Dusseldorf. These are just all things that I think make smaller clubs so unique, but so fascinating and make it, it interesting to care about those leagues and those teams. And so when you just have an ownership group that has seven different clubs and you've made them sort of operate all the same or operate very similarly and there's players moving from one to the other without really having any connection to those clubs or to that identity, yeah. it just takes away a lot of the things that I love and enjoy in soccer and it makes it more about just sort of straight up business acumen and we own this and we have this commodity and we can use it to develop this and we can make this market then previously untapped now more exploitable, utilizable, whatever you want to go with. I think it just removes a lot of the, I don't know, the magic, the uh, whatever yeah. it would be of of fandom, of supporting soccer and caring about soccer on a global scale. In, in a sporting sense, I think there's a strong argument that multi-club ownership probably produces better teams and better mm-hmm. players. But as a fan, there's more to my fandom than just the sport itself. And you want to believe that the people who are running your clubs have an understanding not just of the club but of the community as well and so the thought of someone sitting in a central office and you know a secretary poking their head through the door and going oh the manager's on the phone and that person going okay which one uh does not (laughs) does not comfort me very much it doesn't feel like there there would be much of a genuine connection or an understanding of that club because how 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 could there be you know how can ferran soriano have uh, in-depth, intricate understanding of each of the 12 clubs and their communities that City Football Group owns. It's just, it's just too much for him to be across. 
So I, I think we've covered the the positives, why uh, these like groups and organizations are trying to make this happen, why it will probably continue to happen, but also why we are uncomfortable with that, why we don't necessarily love it, even if we see the sporting merit of it. Graham, anything else that we should cover before we, we call this one 101? I just can't wait to see who... Bully gives a bully beer to in the negotiations and which clubs he targets. I I I just I just don't have much yeah. faith in Todd Bully to understand soccer, and so I anticipate next season Chelsea being drawn in the in you know a cup or whatever, and Todd Bully going, can we just buy them? Like, yeah. do we get through this competition if we just buy the other club? To to go with a clumsy extended metaphor for a moment, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe works well or worked well up until a point because you had Kevin Feige there making every single decision, making it so that like, yes, you Taika Waititi can take a franchise and do something with it. As long as it starts here, this conflict happens to develop this character. And then it concludes here so that the next movie can pick up from there. Like there's this overarching plan. There's this overarching vision that the DC movies did not have. And you can see how disastrously, disastrously that has gone for DC. And I, Extend that to soccer where you could have a city football group who have an overarching vision for everything, have a plan for everything, and it has more or less worked. But Todd Bowley, I think, taking over a bunch of clubs thus far has not proven himself to be an astute owner or a particularly effective owner when it comes to Chelsea. And I think about him then buying three other clubs. I don't know if that changes. And so we've we have largely seen this more or less work. But as it becomes more ubiquitous, I can see it starting to not work, and then you have multiple clubs being dragged into these negative affiliations, negative relationships that can only have negative consequences. Uh So that is the other consequence we haven't seen yet, but I think is inevitable down the road. So what you're saying is that Todd Bowley made Suicide Squad? Yeah, more or less. Not the Suicide, whichever one was bad, (laughs) because there's two, and the second one I liked more. But yeah, the first one, the one that's all... Still wasn't great, the second one. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't great, but at least it wasn't recut by the people who did the trailer, because the trailer looked cool and had cool music. That is what DC DC, uh, Comics were utilizing, so let's hope that nobody buying Bordeaux has them, I don't know, recut their entrance Uh music and and their entire look to be more cool. So basically, Todd Bowley needs to hire James Gunn, right? Yes. I don't see what could possibly go wrong. He's never been a problem either. (laughs) On that note, (laughs) uh, Graham Ruthman, thank you for talking about multi-club ownership, sister clubs, feeder clubs, selling clubs, all that good stuff. It's been been a lot, but I think we've covered some ground (laughs) in 40 minutes. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. Listeners, thank you all so much for listening. We very much appreciate you listening to Soccer 101 as well as the Total Soccer Show. And we will be back next week with another episode. Talk to you then. 